I'm excited to be here another year, and it's inspiring to hear stories of singer-songwriters um, making their name, scratching it out. So I'm Jeff, and I, I teach a class at Stanford on using data science to study music engagement, and I'm the CEO co-founder of Smule. I'm going to be focusing more on the Stanford side of, of my background today. So here's a question. Why, why is music engaging? It is, right? So a Nielsen survey last year said 93, 94% of Americans listen to over 15 hours of music a week. And if you looked at active engagement, so making a choice, music beats TV, 75% to 73%. Pretty cool, right? So why? So I can remember uh, attending a master class at Stanford, a jury panel where a girl was playing a Bach Toccata, sorry, not Carmen, Johann Sebastian. And the lead violinist of the St. Lawrence String Quartet was the lead on the jury panel, and he was asking her, what's this Bach Toccata about? She didn't know. And he goes, well, maybe Bach is about four things. Singing, dancing, I'll change the words, procreating, or understanding our role in the cosmos. This song was about dancing. So the question is, as music's business models have moved towards engagement, where it's not so much about passive listening experiences anymore, why is music engagement? And can we use science, specifically data science, to understand why music's engaging? And I think the answer is yes, but I think on, we're on the front end of answering some of those questions. And what I'd like to share with you today is just a quick snapshot of some of the data we've used at Stanford and at Smule to study music engagement and to understand why music is so pervasive and so popular. Well, there are other reasons to study music engagement. We had this kind of funny piece written in the Huffington Post where, believe it or not, we predicted the presidential election by doing correlation analysis on music preferences between swing states, red states, and blue states. Uh, truth be told, we missed Florida, but the disclaimer here is this was after the first debate where Obama did not win the first debate. So it, it, it was a good call at the time, but we were kind of doing this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, although the analysis was true. We looked at millions of music performances around the country, and we used statistical models to understand what those musical preferences were between these various regions in the country. Well, there are other reasons to study music engagement. Here's a chart from App Annie on top grossing on mobile for non-games. And so you can see my company, Smule, um, is now two above Microsoft and mobile. Now, of course, Microsoft, by the way, Microsoft's a company in Redmond that sells operating systems on personal computers. But there's obviously more to Microsoft's revenue than what they're selling through Apple and Google. Um, and Pandora does a lot of revenue through advertising, which doesn't show up through Apple and Google. But I will say that, you know, Smule's now number five. And I think we're number five because we're studying music engagement and we're understanding why people are engaging with music and we're finding ways to monetize that. Well, here's Bartok, Bela Bartok, composer, pianist, um, one of the fathers of ethnomusicology, recording Transylvanian villagers 100 years ago because he wanted to capture the folk music at its source. So this is probably the first phonograph those villagers had seen. And unfortunately, once they saw it, I'm not sure it was able to capture the folk music anymore. So this is one of the dilemmas of studying ethnomusicology. 
But nonetheless, it's interesting to think about, well, what was motivating Bartok a century ago to study music? Well, one reason was, of course, to capture it before we lost it. But I think he was very interested in learning about the intrinsic attributes of music that would motivate people to truly engage. Well, music's changing. Here's the premiere of Bart um, Mahler's Eighth in Philadelphia 100 years ago. And here is IMT Pain using our IMT Pain application. Maybe music's at an inflection point. Maybe the past 100 years, the era of the recording, isn't what music's about. Maybe before the era of the recording, it was about performing or participating or going to the concert or convincing your little sister to play the second part on the piano with you. And maybe we're returning to where music was here today, ironically again, through technology. Well, there's lots of different facets of music engagement we can study. The one that's particularly interesting to us at Smule is performance. Not just listening, not just discovering, but in fact performance. And here are some examples of the applications we offer. Here's an application where people can play the piano. And by the way, it's not as good as a Steinway. If you want a piano, go buy a piano. They're great. <laughs> I have a few. But my Steinway doesn't fit on Caltrain. And it turns out not everybody has a degree from Juilliard. I don't. And so maybe it's in interesting to think about allowing lots of people to experience music in expressive ways. And this is what our piano product does. And we also have a sing product that allows you to sing through your phone. And you can sing literally with people across the world. On a typical day, we have 12 million performances across our network. Here's an example. So Jesse J from Flashlight created a version of her song. It was actually filmed at her hotel room before she went on stage down in Vegas and seated on our network and then invited our community to come and join her song and within a couple of months we had 150,000 people join her song. And they created videos of them singing with Jesse, so it's a virtual duet. It's not an actual duet, it's a virtual duet. But some of those duets became very popular, going back to the example in Carmen of covers. So here's one example that lit up the Philippines with uh, Zendi, a pop artist over there. All right, um, not getting audio. I am. Ah. Things that I don't know. Thank you. Tomorrow comes, tomorrow comes, tomorrow comes. Oh. And though the room is long, I look up to the sky. And in the dark I found, I stood and I won't fly. And I sing along, I sing along, and I sing along. Isn't she great? You can see Zendi was actually using some of our pitch correction to juice it up a little bit. Always sounds a little bit better with some of the sauce and with a little bit of the reverb. Reverb is catch-up in music technology, right? You can never get enough reverb. <laughs> that video had 10 million views on YouTube, had another 20 million on Facebook. All of those 150,000 videos that uh, were seated with Jesse generated 200 million views across Facebook and YouTube. So it was pretty... Uh, pretty popular performance. Here's an example of where content is uploaded across our network. You can see we have work to do in Greenland and the Sahara, but we're making progress in America and Europe and Japan. 
those performances in Antarctica were real. We actually tried, it was a Chinese tourist, and they went back up to China and did another performance. Uh, so the data, what's interesting now is with the internet, with mobile, there's a lot of data that we have to use to study engagement. And prior to having this data, a lot of the studies were very anecdotal. You'd hire five undergrads to play a scale. And you'd say, well, they played it faster going up than down. But the problem was you had five undergrads. So from a statistical standpoint, it's insignificant. There's really no scientific conclusions we could make from such studies. But now we live in the world with YouTube, Facebook, Smule, Pandora, where there's a lot of data. And so now we can make statistically interesting observations about people engaging in music. And if you look at the type of data that we're storing, there's really three types. There's catalogs, so songs that people are writing and arranging that other people are singing. There's performances, covers, and original. And then there's the data itself. So some statistics here. We, on a typical day, our community will create 850 new songs in our catalog. They'll perform 12 million songs and upload 500,000 of those to the network. So we're storing three terabytes a day. And we'll store about 150 million analytic events telling us how people are engaging. So I want to jump in real quick and show you a couple cuts of the data. Let's first look at demographics through our analytics package. This is what a query would look like. We actually built our own analytics engine. We previously used Mixpanel. And we got tired of the sampling and the fees, so we wrote our own. This is called MK. MK stands for Mixpanel Killer. Sorry. Um, but here's a query where we're looking at the number of rec starts. And we're graphing that for our sing product by birth year. And we're looking at specifically for people that are singing Jesse J's flashlight. And then we're um, outputting it by birth year. And, and here's the graph you get. You could see that the song peaks right around 17 years old. So it's 50 years old on the left, 13 years, 15 years old on the right. And you could see it steadily builds by age when we get into those younger years. What's interesting is if you put let it go side by side, people know let it go. Anybody have children? Do you hate the song as much as I do now? I really liked it for two days, and then I got an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old, and it's been rough, right? I have a very different perspective on Disney music now. But um, what's interesting about Let It Go is it's still climbing when you get to age 13. It's becoming even more popular as you go younger in age. But what's also fascinating is there's, a, there's another uh, peak on the chart right around 41. Okay, that's not me, but I mean, there's two theories here. One is that Disney is making the whole home, bringing the whole home into Disney, not just the little girls, or maybe your little girl's using daddy's phone. It's probably both, right? All right, so then we looked at average age of people uploading songs. So this is kind of almost a measure of inhibition or the absence of inhibition. And it's interesting, the chart peaks right around 30 to 34 years old. So then we said, well, gee, why is that? And we pulled up some data from the UK, and here's the average age of your first marriage. <laughs> it's the same chart, literally, same, same slope on the data. Now, I haven't proven that that's why people are uploading more. I'm just showing you two slices of data, right? We cut it by country, so it's a question of who, what countries are uploading more songs. And what was interesting is, is that in Korea, despite having the, some of the best bandwidth out there. So bandwidth could be a constraint, a confounder that could uh, interfere with our analysis here. But despite having the best bandwidth, had the lowest upload, upload percentage, whereas Brazil had the highest. And then US was kind of someplace in between. And here's 
male, female for the Sing product. In the U.S., it's all, all women. It's like, why is that? My girl in her musical in junior high, there's like two guys and 50 girls trying out. It wasn't that way 50 years ago. I mean, what, guys, what's up? We're mostly guys here. We're all in tech. What's wrong with singing? Is it going to kill you? Right? And you contrast that with Korea. Well, that's an enlightened society. Even though they're not uploading as much, at least we have the right ratios, right? Anyway, so that's one cut. Another cut of the data is looking at the social graph. So we specifically analyzed how people are connecting through music, and we, we analyzed two types of networks, a star topology, where it's one person being followed by a lot of other people. So it's like a Twitter type of graph. And then we looked at what we call the circled graph of duets. And these are people that are connected to each other by singing songs together. And so I wanted to show you a few slides just drilling down on what the social graph looks like for people singing to us together. It's really kind of interesting. And in this data set, we captured data for two weeks, um, and this represents 450,000 nodes. So 450,000 different people across the world. So, and here's the graph, and credit to our, our data science team, Ian and Lee, for, for doing this analysis in Bay. But it's pretty cool. If you look, like, if you look at the graph, we have these different uh, communities that are kind of forking off into their own independent communities, and you have kind of a central community with US, Great Britain, Canada, and Australia right in the middle. And so the question is, well, why is that? Why is that? And so we've actually done quite a bit of analysis of this. I'm not going to share all of it with you today. But let's just drill down on a couple of these segments. So in the US, what we found was that people were connected primarily through country music. I know that's sad. We're out here in San Francisco, right? Although, truth be told, I have seen Willie Nelson perform in this town, and he was awesome. Okay, So nothing against country music for me, folks. But um, country music was connecting a lot of people across this graph. But it's a, it's a pretty diverse graph. You also have ballads and pop is kind of the central genres of music connecting people through this social graph. If you then take a look at Japan, it's very different. It's not so diverse. 89% of the graph is all in Japan, this island country. Um, and the primary genres are J-pop, anime. I'm going to play you a quick example. And then an unknown topic. We need more Japanese people in our company to understand that. But here's anime. <laughs> So that's a duet from somebody in Tokyo and then somebody north in Tokyo. That's an anime song, very popular. But that represents a genre of music of really one of the clusters in the social graph. They're connected through this genre. Um, you contrast that with Korea and only 57% of the social graph is based in Korea compared to 89% in Japan. Uh, K-pop, a huge genre connecting people across this graph. But it looks like there's almost this K-pop bridge connecting Seoul to Los Angeles. And there's a lot of uh, collaboration going on in of this community of these nodes connecting across, across the pond. Not something that we expected. So it's interesting, no? <laughs> it's interesting to think about how different countries, music preferences, genres, are forging these new communities of how people across the world are interacting with each other to create content. All right, one more quick example, and then I'll see if there's a question or two. So 
we've studied analytics data. You can also study the actual performance data. You could open up the soundtrack of what somebody's saying and try to understand if they were hitting the right notes. You could understand if when they leaped to hit a high note, if they missed it or they scooped it. You could understand if listeners actually appreciated that form of performance or not. But all of the data is there now for analysis. And so here's an example of how we used analysis for people playing piano to understand if there were expertise or knowledge of particular music genres. By the way, we've published this data up at Stanford. It's called the Digital Archive of Mobile Performance, DAMP. So you can search for Stanford DAMP and any researcher can get access to this data. By the way, a month ago, if you search for DAMP, Stanford DAMP, the top hit was custodial services at Stanford. The good news is we've taken them out and we're now number one. Custodial services is two. But yeah, so that's the Stanford DAMP archive. It's got a ton of performance data, but we ran the statistical model to try to understand skill. We ran it Chopin versus Bach, and sure enough, more skill for Chopin in Central Europe than Western Europe. And then we looked at Christmas music in Asia versus video game music. And turns out the Chinese don't really understand Western Christmas music, but the people on the southern end of the Korean Peninsula do for some reason. For video game music, however, everyone understands it. It's one of the genres that seems to transcend every cultural boundary. Go figure. Anyway, that's it for my comments. Um, I'd be happy to take one or two questions, but the summary is music's engaging. Music business models are migrating to engagement. And it's an exciting time now to use data science to study engagement, to develop better insights into our relationship with art. Questions? Please. Thanks. This thing right here. It seems like everyone is trying to make a, a social network around music. What do you think they're, they're missing? Like Apple Music, they're trying to have people follow artists and, and connect with artists. So the question is about social music as a network. Well, we have 30 million monthly actives um, storing three, billion, or three terabytes a day. So it's a significant data point. It's not like we're the only ones out there. But I think there are two reasons why we've been able to scale. One, I think that we've been able to manage the copyright license in a legitimate way without impairing our growth. And I think what we've done there basically is, is we've played, we've been good citizens. We've cut, we've cut contracts now with 800 publishers around the world. We have licenses to every major label. We have blanket licenses. And, and so we're, we're paying royalties, but we're not paying royalties on the master recordings. We're paying royalties on the performances, right? And so that's a different way to be able to scale a social network than if we were licensing the master recordings. And it's because it's your voice, it's not, Taylor Swift's voice. And the second reason, I think it's because it's all user-generated content. And I think this is one of the things we've missed in music. We feel, felt like we could build a social networks around professional content with streaming services and sharing playlists and the rest. And the fact is every social network is actually anchored around user-generated content. That's social media. And the challenge with music is, well, the musical fluency today isn't as high as perhaps it was 100 years ago. And that's why we've built applications to allow the creation of music to be much more accessible to a lot of people. So I think it's those two factors, getting the licensing model right, and then I think opening up the network to user-generated content through these mobile applications. Another quick question. In the back, just yell it. Okay, no, 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 don't yell it. Mike's coming. Hey, uh, I really enjoyed the Jesse J example, and um, what does an ideal kind of artist involved 
situation, like invitation to user-generated content look like? And how do you facilitate more of them? Right, so why was Jessie engaging? I think she was very authentic. I think if you look at the generation that's consuming music today, they like this authenticity. And so too much polish is, is not a good thing. And I think she really engaged with a virtual duet. And she was willing to open up and not just follow a script. Um, so I think all of those factors combined to make Jesse quite engaging. Um, to the broader question of why are artists using our platform, well, we are seeing a lot more artists use our platform. Jason Derulo, Luke Bryan, et cetera. And I think there are three reasons. One, because it's a unique way for them to engage with their fans. They can't do this on Facebook or Twitter. They, on our platform, they could sing songs together. I think second, um, reach. We have significant reach now, as, as much as radio channels and the rest. And then, and then I think the third reason is we'll pay them royalties if they wrote the song, so they can generate revenue. All right, I'm out of time. Apologies for going a minute over, but I enjoyed sharing this with you and happy to chat with you more. I'm gonna have this orange hat on so you can find me um, or not. But thanks again for all of your time. Thank you, Jeff.